This is Media Business Matters, the podcast about why recent news in the media businesses matters to people who love media. I'm Amanda Lotz. And I'm Alex Sintner. In this episode, we continue our series of interviews on local media with a conversation with Joseph Lichterman. Joseph Lichterman is a senior business associate at the Lenfast Institute for Journalism, a nonprofit that owns the Philadelphia Media Network. His work in- includes a newsletter called Solution Set, which focuses on experimentation in local news. He's here to talk about his research and some ideas for survival and, dare we say, optimism in the space of local media. Joseph, welcome to Media Business Matters. Thanks so much for having me. Joseph, one of the things that we've asked a number of our interviewees is is just starting out how they would define local. And if you could talk a little bit about how the situation might be different in small town America from that in larger cities, even though both would be considered local. Yeah, I, I generally think of local as being journalism defined by sort of a geographic area, sort of you think about it in a certain locale or uh, there's a really a sense of place to it where there's, I mean, something like the New York Times is obviously they're based in New York and call themselves the New York Times, but really that's for a national or even international audience. But something like the Philadelphia Inquirer, the Detroit Free Press, unless you are living in those areas or from those areas, they're coverage and reporting isn't necessarily going to be be relevant to you. And, and the difference between, I think, a, a lot of the, the bigger publications, sort of metro publications, which you would think of as sort of big metro areas versus smaller rural or, or even small town newspapers is just the really the area and the, the coverage areas, I suppose, if that makes sense in terms of um, if you're in a small town newspaper, it's just a smaller number of people in, in the types of things you're covering directly impact more people. So if I'm reading something in my metro newspaper, it might be in a different area of town or a different suburb or something like that that still doesn't directly affect me, but maybe of interest because I'm a resident of the area. But I think at a more rural or local paper, it's more likely to have a direct impact on on your life because there are fewer people there and uh, just not as much going on in a sense, if that makes sense. Are you seeing different success stories or different strategies that play out differently in those smaller local town venues as opposed to the more metropolitan local papers? Yes and no. I think a lot of this, I mean, the scale of a lot of this stuff is different, but I think a lot of the strategies are the same. Even in bigger metro areas, there's been this sense of back in maybe before the internet or when print and was still uh, thriving in a lot of ways, you tried to be everything for all people. And now in a lot of senses, you're trying to be, try and really serve more specific audiences. So you're seeing lots of, even in bigger cities, lots of publications just covering specific areas or covering specific topics within the area. So even if you're in a bigger city or a smaller town, it's still all about identifying and really targeting audiences and targeting readers who might be willing to to support you or be a part of really your organization, whether that's through membership or subscriptions or just reading it and being exposed to your ads. Yeah, let's dig a little bit more into kind of what you're talking about there. What have you seen local publications doing to better engage readers who might have moved away from print journalism? I know your solution set talks about you know, social media groups and online communities that these papers are building. 
Yeah, that's exactly a lot of it. It's really, as newspapers, um, you guys talked about this in, in your intro episode about the move away from advertising-driven media, and there's been more of a focus on uh, reader-supported revenue, whether that is membership or digital subscriptions or any other number of, of methodologies. There's been the sense that you have to build a sense of community around the publication to get people to feel invested and be willing to pay to to support you. So there's things like um, I wrote about the Dallas Morning News has a Facebook group for its subscribers. So if you subscribe to the paper, you can join this Facebook group and have ongoing conversations with uh, the journalists. So the journalists will post their stories or post pictures of them reporting behind the scenes or ask questions or feedback or just engage in conversations. And that's a way to get your most loyal readers, the people who are paying a lot of money to access your site to feel invested and be willing to continue to do that. Another example of this is sort of in Michigan, in East Lansing, there's a site called East Lansing Info, and they view themselves in a citizen journalism model. So they're working with community members to actually go out and do the reporting, and they will train them and pay them and give them the support they need to go out and cover a, a city council meeting or an education board meeting. And they see that as a way to sustainability and getting people to really feel invested and help out with the reporting. So it's happening in a bunch of different ways and a bunch of different scales across the country. But really, there needs to be, publications are realizing that there needs to be this sense of getting people directly invested in the journalism. Another way that publications are kind of attacking that is with newsletters. Um, So what do publications stand to gain from a newsletter that's successful? Yeah, newsletters have sort of come back into vogue in the past couple of years. It's sort of, in digital terms, a really old technology. So it's been interesting to see it come back. But uh, as so much of the way we consume news and information online is mediated through these big platforms, Facebook and Google especially, where you're sort of at the whims of their algorithm in terms of Facebook deciding what comes up uh, in your newsfeed first or deciding to downplay news and instead prioritize posts from friends and family or Google, sort of who knows what's going to come up when people search. But with newsletters, you have direct access to readers. And so they make a conscious choice saying, I want you in my inbox and they know you will be there. And so it's this really direct, intimate relationship that is able to bypass the gatekeepers in a sense of the bigger platforms. And so research has shown also amongst um, groups and readers that people who are newsletter subscribers and you have that direct relationship with are ultimately more likely to um, subscribe or join and become members because it's habituation and builds habit. If you're there on a daily or weekly basis, people know to expect it and uh, have this relationship with you. And so uh, you've seen publishers really double down in a lot of senses on newsletters. And there are are different strategies for it and different approaches to how to deal with the platform. And so you'll see places like the Seattle Times is a great example of this. Um, They have a metered paywall, so they ultimately want people to hit a certain number of articles per month and then have to pay to subscribe. So they have great newsletter products that are packed full of links to their own articles. The idea is that they want to get you to click more through their articles and hit the wall and ultimately pay. And so that's a a great way to get people 
into that funnel of subscribing them and getting them to be from just readers to actual subscribers. Um, but then there are also sort of more editorially driven uh, newsletters. My favorite example of this is a guy in Seattle named Matt Kieser runs a, a daily newsletter called What the F*** Just Happened Today that is a daily recap of everything that goes on with the Trump administration. And there is so much crazy political news going on, but he every afternoon will send you an email saying, here are the most important things that happened. And you can just read that email and feel caught up and up to date. And it is a finite, finishable product, unlike, say, our Facebook or Twitter feeds that are sort of never ending and uh, always full of content. So there there are different ways to approach newsletters, but I think the combination of it being direct access to readers and sort of a finite, finishable product makes it really appealing for news organizations. So to move on to another example of what publications are doing, so we did a series on public radio back in the fall, and it really, so it stuck out to me when you talked about memberships and local news organizations bringing memberships into the fold as another way to raise money from their audience. I guess I kind of saw this a little bit as the public radio model spreading to other types of publications. Yeah, I I totally agree. I think public radio has, I mean, this has been their business model for really as long as public radio has existed in its current form, and they have totally been on the vanguard of this. And yeah, I think publications are, are starting to replicate that and see what they can learn from public media also. And public media also is sort of interestingly uh, going through this sense of reckoning also in terms of rethinking what membership means in a lot of senses. They have mostly been reliant on member stations, reliant on pledge drives on air uh, as a way to convert listeners and uh, get them to join and contribute. But as more listening has moved uh, online and digitally and people especially are getting national programs directly from NPR say you can listen to fresh air uh, in your podcast feed and not have to listen on your local public radio station. They're bypassing those fundraising messages in a lot of ways. So public radio has had to rethink their membership approach also, which has been really, really interesting to see. The the thing that I think is interesting with membership also is that it's this appeal toward the, the mission of the organization. It's voluntary. You can still listen to public radio or read the Texas Tribune or any of these great nonprofit news sites. But if you really believe in the mission and believe in the type of journalism they're doing, membership is uh, a great approach to try and get people to feel like they're part of this organization. And I think there are a lot of similarities also between sort of political organizing and community building and that type of thing with the membership approach. And so it's a recognition that it's not going to be all your audience that joins, but it's going to be uh, some of your most passionate and loyal supporters, and you can use them to contribute financially and also help spread the word. There's been lots of thought and discussion about other ways to join and other ways to think about what membership means, Um, especially with public radio. um, A lot of the people who contribute in the member base tends to be older and whiter than maybe uh, the audiences you're helping to serve. And so a lot of organizations are thinking about different ways to define membership so that whether that means donating your time or donating your services or other ways to help contribute and give back and provide value to the organization and feel like you're a part of it. In one of your recent solutions set, 
you took on the topic of news deserts. Can you just talk a little bit about what a news desert is to start out with? A news desert is generally the, um, I guess, an area where there isn't adequate news coverage. So this is um, a place where you there isn't a daily newspaper anymore, a local TV station or radio covering uh, your community in a town in a regular way. And so it's... Um, can be an area where it's a challenge to get accurate and adequate information about what's going on in uh, in your local local area. Have you traced this phenomenon over time? What are the the things that are really exacerbating the issue? Yeah, I, I, and the issue with that, I mean, it is there've been all the challenges facing news organizations. So the number of print newspapers uh, around the country has decreased and despite everything in a lot of communities, print newspapers are still sort of the places that sort of I've heard it described almost as the plankton of of news ecosystems. Sort of it is the journalism that provides the, the basis for other organizations um, build off. That's oftentimes whether it's TV or radio will um, sort of piggyback off of reporting that starts with the newspaper. When that disappears, it's sort of like the, the base level is gone in a lot of ways for these news ecosystems. And so it's struggling to adapt. And so whether it's covering city council or the school board or uh, these really core institutions in our communities, a lot of those institutions go unchecked. It's been really interesting to see sort of other types of organizations try and step up and fill in the gaps for those in in cities and communities where maybe they're isn't a daily newspaper doing the the reporting it used to or, or at the same level where it used to do it. I mean, East Lansing Info, is, which I mentioned earlier, is a great example of this where there is the Lansing State Journal um, covering Lansing, but they're not really covering East Lansing on a day-to-day basis. And so um, this sort of group of concerned citizens came together to start this entity uh, to fill in the gaps and help make their community more informed. And this East Lansing is obviously sort of a more wealthy university town, and so it it may be an anomaly, but uh, I think you're starting to see other examples of that in areas and other uh, places. A great example of this also is an organization uh, in Chicago called City Bureau, and they focus primarily on the city's south and west sides, which are primarily African-American and minority neighborhoods and have been chronically undercovered by the mainstream publications in the city. And so they will uh, work with people in the community. They have what's called a documenters program and will train them and pay them and send them to go cover uh, community meetings and city meetings and things going on in the neighborhood to help provide coverage. And they'll work with schools to help give youth skills to go do the reporting and inform them of what's going on. So this is really happening in small towns and big urban areas also to see these new organizations organizations pop up to try and fill in the gaps. I found the map that uh, Columbia Journalism Review did of the country that you linked to in the story really fascinating. I grew up in a sort of a rural county in, in northwest Ohio, and I was surprised to see that, that that small town, it has three newspapers still um, with its population of 75,000, whereas Washtenaw County, where we are in affluent Ann Arbor uh, with 350,000, it was also showing up as three. So I'm not exactly sure what all was being counted there. Probably the daily is being counted in there. Yeah, it, because one of the things that has surprised me over time as I've, I've lived in Ann Arbor and, and seen the, the loss of a paper here 
is the degree to which in in that that small northwestern town the newspaper is still exactly the same as it was you know 20 30 years ago i guess one of the questions we talked with uh, christopher ali who is an academic who studies localism and we sort of talked a little bit about the question of how do we assess sort of quality or what is actually in local media as opposed to just sort of trying to develop a vision based on on counting? His focus is a little bit more on television, and so we could talk about the way in which uh, there might be a local television station, but actually the information that that, that local source is generating is, is often um, pretty minimal. Um, I'm kind of hard on on television news, as you might see. Um, are you seeing qualitative differences in what is being done in these is small places in the experiments? You know, in, are you seeing reporting that is different in more depth, more community based than what it would have been when a traditional professional journalist was doing the coverage? I, I think broadly, yes, but it's mostly anecdotal, and I feel like a lot of the places like in East Lansing, they, they were really, there was nothing there before. So they were, it's an improvement on nothing in a sense. So it, it's difficult to compare. And I don't know necessarily sort of back in the day when uh, there were print newspapers in every town, whether the coverage was necessarily better. I think that's subjective in a lot of senses. But I think this broad challenge also sort of as so many local papers are owned by corporate chains. And so you look at a place like Gannett, they have gone all in on sort of this USA Today network approach where they are sharing coverage amongst all their their papers. And uh, so many of the, the smaller local papers, also it is mostly just a lot of republished USA Today coverage as opposed to really focused on their local community. I, I think that's a really huge challenge, even when there are still papers in the community, they are, in a lot of senses, relics of their former selves and are having more wire and AP and uh, more national content, which is maybe great if that's people's only news source, but I imagine people are getting national news from elsewhere, either intentionally or unintentionally, just sort of seeping through in their feeds. So the, the quality is a huge issue, and I don't know if there's a great way to measure that or a great way to ascertain whether it's improved or not, but I totally think that there needs to be uh, more focus on developing quality local news sources. Yeah, there, there's a quote that stuck out to me recently from one of our fellow Michigan Daily alums, Rebecca Blumenstein. She said, there are some people who think that college newspapers could be the solution to local news deserts. Do you think that's the case? Yeah, I think college newspapers can play a great role in, in helping address the challenge. And I mean, they are great reporters, eager and have the time to dedicate it to it. But I think just the inherent challenge of college newspapers um, can be a little difficult. I mean, it is a transient staff. I mean, every year you lose your most experienced staff and your leadership. And so it's really difficult with college newspapers to build that institutional memory, sort of. You don't have reporters who are there for 10, 15, 20 years who can really develop a relationship and sources and um, have this innate understanding with the community. So while I, I think college newspapers can certainly play a role and be helpful, I think it's difficult for them to completely replace what's going on in terms of the loss of community publications. I mean, you've seen this in Ann Arbor. I think the Daily has made a great effort to cover the city and help cover uh, what's going on in Ann Arbor, but it's not able to replace what the Ann Arbor News once was. 
Yeah, certainly. And there also there there aren't colleges everywhere, and certainly aren't colleges with big robust papers everywhere. So in 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 select communities, it's an option. Yeah, exactly. And the thing I think that's actually interesting about college newspapers is um, they, in a lot of cases, have been really tradition bound and. You would think that younger people, these people are cutting edge and should be able to innovate really quickly, but because they have such little time at the paper, I mean, if you're an editor, you're there for in charge for maybe a year, which is not a long time, you're sort of hesitant to really change things too much. You know the way your predecessor did things worked, and uh, that's what you know, so you're more uh, reluctant to make big change and and be really uh, innovative. So let's move on to another topic. Listening to readers seems to be a lesson that comes up in a lot of your solution sets. Why do you think that is, and how can this be applied to helping local media organizations? Yeah, I I think, I mean, from a business perspective, as you're moving to more reader-supported models, you need to be cognizant of what they're they're thinking about and and what readers want. If you are expecting readers to pay for your journalism, you should be serving them. You're they're your customer in a sense. And so I think is only sensible to be listening to them and meeting their needs and serving what they want. I think for so long uh, there was just sort of this mass sense of what audience it was and the journalists knew best and had the news judgment and understood what the community needed. But there's more of a need, I think, now to, as you're having more niche audiences and identifying specific audiences of readers who are willing to pay, uh, that you should listen to them and understand what they want and, and what is most useful for them. There are so many places now to, to get news and information and just content online that if you aren't serving your readers in the best possible way, they're going to go elsewhere. And also, I just think from a journalistic perspective, it's good journalism. You're supposed to be serving the community, and why not ask them and be in in conversation with them in terms of what they want to know about and what they need and and things like that. It is um, sort of journalism 101 in a lot of senses. In this era when everyone talks about fake news and not being able to trust the media, if you are receptive and open and willing to, to convert with readers and audience members, it's a great first step to building trust and building understanding. Your bio notes that when you wrote for Neiman Journalism Lab that you wrote 300 stories covering outlets on six continents. And I'm just wondering if there were commonalities that emerged out of all of that? Yeah, I I think this sense of audience and really understanding readers is one of those commonalities. One of my favorite startups, actually, is a publication called Dick Correspondent based out of the Netherlands, and it is totally reader-funded, has no ads, uh, and it really views audience members as contributors. So it doesn't it calls comments contributions, and it will ask readers, what should we be reporting on? What do you think about this topic? It recognizes that many of its readers are experts in the areas it's covering, so it'll put call-outs for, hey, if you know about this certain topic we're investigating, we'd love your help and would love to get your feedback and understand uh, what's going on. And, and that model ha- has really thrived for them, and you've seen it replicated in startups in, in in Denmark, in Germany, in Switzerland, and they're launching in the U.S. now. And so I think that type of model is 
replicating and, and moving elsewhere. And I guess another commonality also is just the basic technology thing. We spend so much time on our, our phones now, and that is something that is common all over the world. And so you're having to see journalism, which was once designed for the TV screen or uh, the the radio or, or your print paper to really rethink of what it means to consume journalism on a mobile device. And so whether that's things like vertical video or presenting journalism in, in text messages, it's you're starting to see all over the world really publishers rethink what it means to do journalism as more and more people consume news and information on mobile devices. And I think that's really exciting to see the the format and things like that redefined for, for really how we consume news. So jumping now back up to the big picture, and what do you see as the biggest challenges facing local media, local journalism going forward? The biggest challenge, I think, really is going to be the business model. For so long, um, especially at, at newspapers, you were relying on advertising. And so making this transition to more digital focus, more reader revenue focused is going to be a challenge. And it's not going to be easy. And it's not everyone, I think, is going to be able to make that transition. But uh, the publications that are are doing it and are doing it well. It's sort of everything we've been talking about in terms of thinking about the product, thinking about audience first, thinking about even what the coverage is, what people expect of a local publication. So everything coming back to that, I think, is going to be the the biggest challenge for local publications in terms of figuring out how they can reach sustainability. And I guess another tangential challenge, I suppose, is this really interesting discussion and challenge around trust and and what it means to believe and support journalism. I mean, there's been this all this discussion about fake news and journalists are the enemy of the American people. And so there's been lots of conversation and discussion about how publications can rebuild that trust and really get people to sort of understand their role and, and believe in that they are on their side and members of the community also and looking out for their best interests. Figuring out how to do that, I think, is of vital importance also and plays back into that business model question as well. Now, I like to be optimistic, but I I know um, in our intro episode, we were pretty despondent about (laughs) the future of local media and whether there is a future for local media. Is there a reason to be optimistic? I mean, what gives you hope? And, you know, if there isn't much that gives you hope, what is keeping you down? I I mean, I think you sort of have to be optimistic. Um, I think there's lots of really exciting innovation and experiments going on at the local landscape. I, I think the future of local news isn't going to look like necessarily what we've expected local news to be. I think it'll be a, a mixture of uh, maybe smaller niche publications who are able to come together as sort of an ecosystem to help sort of cover a city or cover a local area. There might be a ProPublica in every town. There's ProPublica Illinois recently launched based in Chicago, and they are doing tremendous investigative reporting on Illinois and Chicago. And um, it'd be great to see other types of places like that elsewhere. I mean, uh, one of my favorite examples of, of this type of thing is in Philadelphia. There's a program called Resolve Philadelphia, and it is a collaboration uh, between nine 
19 news organizations and education entities in the city. And they're currently collaborating on a project called Broken Philly. So they're covering economic justice and poverty in the city. Philadelphia is the poorest big city in the country. And uh, they're collectively taking a look at um, what it means to to be poor in the city and what the city can do to help solve this crisis. And so Billy Penn is a local startup in Philadelphia aimed at millennials, and they published a story about um, summer camp options in the city, different things that kids can do over the summer while they're out of school, and the Philadelphia Inquirer republished that in print. I think you're going to see more collaboration amongst publications like that in the sense that uh, we're stronger together, and if we work together and share resources, we can better serve our communities. That's something that makes me really optimistic also, that more people are, are going to, to work together and collaborate and hopefully um, sort of recognize that the the sum is greater than the... I messed up that analogy, but basically that uh, <laughs> by working together, we can better serve the community. Yeah, that's a great point, and it ties back to what you see as the challenge in, in, in terms of the business model. The previous ad-supported business model really pit every local journalism outlet against each other because of the competition for ad support. And if we move away from advertising as, as the primary source of revenue or the only source of revenue for all of the, the local media outlets, then you do begin to have incentives for that kind of collaboration. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it comes back to the sense of serving readers. And if you are going to get people to buy into your mission, buy in to uh, what you're providing, you want to provide the the best service to them. And that comes from everything from coverage to the user experience on your website or app, that it's even things like those annoying pop-up ads that take over your browser and slow things down. Yes, that's ad revenue, but you may want to sort of rethink what that does to the user experience and whether the experience for a subscriber is more valuable than the ad revenue that that brings in. So it it brings in a lot of questions, interesting questions like that in terms of rethinking how you present your coverage and and present uh, news and who you work with and and things like that. And an interesting thing about that also is then you're then starting to see other sources of revenue pop up as well. I think philanthropy is going to be a big part of coverage. Also, you're seeing foundations, especially on the local level. So whether it's a community of foundation or other uh, nonprofit institutions, institutions that care about a certain place are able to make grants to help uh, support coverage of topics they care about. I wrote about this in in New Hampshire. There was a foundation there that worked with the the union leader who they were interested in issues around aging and so provided them with grants that they were able to hire a a reporter to specifically cover that topic and develop a, a readership around it. Back in the day, sort of when print was in its heyday, it was print advertising was the bulk of the, the revenue, and so you're going to start to see more dispersed sense of income sources and sort of more mixed revenue and lots of little dollar amounts coming from lots of places. Well, I think that's a great place to end our conversation. Joseph Lichterman, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. Yeah, thanks so much. This was really great and had a lot of fun. And that's it for this edition of Media Business Matters. If you want to learn more about Media Business Matters, you can go to amandalots.com and click on the podcast link at the top of the page. If you want new episodes delivered to your feed as soon as they're available, including the rest of our local media series, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe on Apple Podcasts and on Google Podcasts. And if you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us. It helps new listeners find the show. 
You can find Amanda on Twitter at DrTVLots. That's D-R-T-V-L-O-T-Z. You can find our guest Joseph Lichterman at Y Lichterman. That's Y L-I-C-H-T-E-R-M-A-N. And you can find me at Alex Entner. That's Alex I-N-T-N-E-R. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll be back soon with the next episode of our local media series.